Let's begin with prayer. Lord, the grass withers and the flower fades, but your word abides forever. So may we hear your word this morning. May we hear you speaking. Lord, may we not just be checking off the minutes on the clock or thinking of what may be next, but may we hear your voice and then go out and live accordingly. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, where is God? People don't often ask that question when things are going well, but then tragedy hits and people ask, where is God in the midst of this chronic illness? In the midst of my broken relationship? In the midst of this rampant sin or this devastating natural disaster, whatever the case may be? Well, James 5, 13 through 18, shows us how to respond, not just to the tragedies or sufferings, but also the blessings of life. It says, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. This says, is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another, and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it may not rain. And for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. So here's telling us, look, when life's going well, we should know where God is, and we should be praising Him. When life is going poorly, we should know where God is, and we should pray to Him. So praise in our blessings, prayers in our sufferings. And then we have this exhortation to pray. James gives us this exhortation to pray, like Elijah well, who is Elijah? What is this three and a half years in which it didn't rain? Well, that is what we are turning to. And you can turn to 1 Kings 17. For in 1 Kings 17, we come across this man, Elijah, and this story of it not raining for three and a half years. But we're going to see that Elijah was nothing special in and of himself, but rather he called on and trusted God's word. And from that foundation of life he blessed others and he honored god this morning as we look at this passage there's kind of three distinct sections first we see in verses one through seven elijah calling on god's word then in verses eight through sixteen we see him trusting god's word for his life and then lastly in verses 17 through 24 we see the widow of zarephath that we shall meet coming to know God's word personally. But let's begin by reading the first seven verses of 1 Kings 17. Now Elijah, the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead, said to Ahab, the king of Israel, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him, Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. You should all drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. 
he went and lived by the brook Cherith, that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. And after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. So if you've been following along in 1 Kings, you would know that this is a rather abrupt introduction. Remember that the Bible originally was not written with chapter divisions and verses and definitely not subheadings. So go back chapter 16, verse 34. It says, In his days, Hile of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun, now Elijah. There would have been no pause. So what it's saying is, look, Ahab has gone so far from the Lord that they were even directly going against God's word and rebuilding Jericho, even sacrificing their own children to do so. And what happens? God sends his word through Elijah, the prophet. And we've heard of prophets before. Nathan, the prophet, spoke in David's time. Then Ahijah came and spoke to Jeroboam. And then an unnamed prophet from Judah rebuked Jeroboam. And then Jehu rebuked Basha. But Elijah is now going to take center stage. We spent a very quick time going over these brief descriptions of kings. And now the story slows down, so to speak. And for five chapters, we're going to focus on King Ahab's reign and the ministry of Elijah the prophet. And yet we're not given much background about Elijah. We're not told of his childhood. We're not told of his prophetic training. We're not told of his philosophy of ministry. Rather, we're just told Elijah from Tishbite comes and he speaks God's word. And what the story is showing us is though Ahab has turned from God and not obeying God's word, God's word still stands. And we see that by the fact that Elijah declares that due to their sins, there will be a drought upon the land. Now, it's very important to realize why he said this. Elijah didn't get together with the prophets and have a strategy discussion of what would be the best thing we could do to cause Ahab to change. He didn't come up with his own ideas of what should be done to punish Ahab. Rather, this is what Deuteronomy 11, 16, and 17 says. It says, Take care, lest your heart be deceived, and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain, and the land will yield no fruit, and you will perish quickly off the good land that the Lord is giving you. Therefore, Elijah is calling upon Ahab the very thing that God said would happen when they turned to other gods. Elijah is speaking God's word. And so Elijah is not coming up with clever ideas, but rather his power is tied to the word of God. That's the point of James 5 that we read earlier. Elijah was a man just like us. If my grandma was here, she would say Elijah put on his pants one leg at a time, just like every other person does. He's just like any other person. But what was unique about Elijah? He trusted God's word. He called on God's word, and that's why... He was able, through God's power, to have this drought for three and a half years. Because it happens as surely as Yahweh, the God of Israel, lives. 
So can we call a drought on a nation because of their unrepentant sin? Well, I don't believe so. Because even though God's word still stands, that was a unique word to the nation of Israel who had a special relationship through the covenant at Sinai. So that was unique to that time. But it still gets to the important issue that we can call on God's word that applies to us. But this gets to another important aspect of these events. And that is just as Elijah is calling on God's word, he's also issuing a test in challenging Baal. The surrounding cultures believed there's many gods. There's the god of the hills, the god of the sea, the god of the skies. And these gods have control of different regions and different aspects of life. And Baal, in their mindset, was the god of fertility. He was the god of weather and thus the God of life. And yet, what are the very issues that uh, come to the forefront of Elijah's ministry here? It's, well, there's going to be death, there's going to be a drought, and there's going to be no crops. In other words, he's saying, y'all want to trust Baal? Okay, let's go to the very thing Baal's supposed to be able to do. Is he going to be able to accomplish it? And we're going to see, no, he will not. So this battle is ensuing at the beginning of chapter 17, Who reigns? Is it Yahweh or Baal? Who can be trusted? And then after this, God commands Elijah to go live by by this brook. The original grub hub begins with ravens bringing food. And what did they bring? Probably something we wouldn't want to eat. But hey, it came twice a day on time and he lived. It's interesting, ravens were birds that they are not allowed to eat. Yet God is showing even though they may be unclean, that doesn't mean you should despise them. They are still his creatures, and he cares for them. And so Elijah obeys, he goes, and he is fed day and night until the brook dries up. What we need to realize, though, is Israel is not just entering into a drought and a famine of rain and food physically. They are also entering a drought and a famine of the food spiritually. As Elijah is symbolizing what Amos the prophet will later say in Amos 8.11. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land. Not a famine of bread, nor thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. Ahab doesn't care about God's word through Joshua. Ahab rejects God's word about not serving other gods. Thus Elijah comes to bring God's word of judgment. And then what does the spokesman of God's word do? He leaves. It's symbolic. It's saying, look, God's word is going to be taken from you. There is going to be a famine of God's word if you do not repent and turn back to God. So will Ahab submit and repent? We'll soon see. But Elijah, can he even be secure in trusting God? Can he trust God to provide? And that's what we see next in verses 8 through 16. Let's read those Verses 1 Kings 17, 8 through 16 says, Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called her and said, Bring me a little water and a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, as the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil and jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in 
and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go and do as you've said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me, and afterward make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, The jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said. And she and her household ate for many days. The jar of oil was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. So Elijah has run out of water, and so God tells him to go to Zarephath in Sidon. And just like God commanded the ravens to faithfully feed him, God has commanded a widow to faithfully feed him there. Except you may have noted two major problems with this. Sidon, we've heard of this city, this place before. Where is Sidon? Sidon is the home of Jezebel, the queen Ahab's wife, the one who brought in Baal worship. Sidon is the place that infected Israel with Baalism. Why would God command Elijah to go there? Well, God commands Elijah to go there because God is taking the fight to Baal's home turf, so to speak. Is there a home court advantage for Baal? Will he do better in his arena? Or can God be trusted in all locations? Second, Sidon's a problem because they're Gentiles. They're unclean. I'm going to be cared for by unclean Gentiles. I'm a prophet. I'm a man of God. And yet God is showing that while he did uniquely choose Israel, he did not choose Israel so as to exclude everyone else. Rather, Israel was to be, as Exodus 19.6 says, a nation of priests, a holy nation to bring in the nations to God. So when Israel rejects God, God still wants the nations to come to him. So he sends his prophets to them. And thus this story, first through the unclean raven, now through the unclean widow of Sidon, showing that what God call, does not call unclean, neither should we. Jesus will take this story and apply it to his own ministry. You may remember that Jesus was baptized. He then went in the wilderness. And then in Luke's gospel, he goes to Nazareth. And in Nazareth, he reads on the Sabbath the scroll from Isaiah 61. And then it says in Luke 4, 21 through 30, And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all the people spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless, you'll quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. Well, we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and in the great famine that came over the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. And none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so they could throw Jesus down the cliff. But passing through their midst, Jesus went away. 
And Jesus is showing that this story is symbolic, that when the nation of Israel rejects, he will go and take his word to other people. You know, we need to be reminded over and over that Christianity is not the religion just of its prominent followers. While Christianity may have many white followers, it is not white religion. While Christianity may have black followers, it is not black religion. While Christianity may have Republican or Democrat followers, neither of them have a claim on Christianity. God will go to any and to all who will turn from their sins and call upon Him. And in our story here, 1 Kings 17, that means He'll even go to the nation of Sidon. I'm sure Elijah goes, Sidon? That's, that's, that, that's the reason we're in trouble. We have Baal because of Sidon. And yet Elijah is being sent there. And so what does Elijah do? He obeys. He goes. And he's standing really in sharp contrast to the kings of Israel because every time God commands Elijah to do something, he does it. Arise and go to the brook. He arises and goes to the brook. Arise and go to Sidon. He arises and goes to Sidon. Elijah, as I said earlier, is going to be known as one of the greatest prophets. And there's many reasons, but I think his obedience is one of the major ones. You know, our obedience to God is an essential part of our relationship with Him. Yes, we should care about our emotional connection to the Lord, our personal relationship. But that is not as important, though it is important, to our willing submission to the Lord. You know, in the moment, obedience to God is not always cheery. It is not always pleasant. But it is always pleasing to God. And so God calls us to act immediately, cheerfully, and completely. And so Elijah goes, and as he arrives at the gates of the city, he sees the widow, and she's gathering sticks. And he calls her, give me some water. Now we might think, whoa, whoa, what are you doing? That's kind of rude, some stranger, and you just say, give me water. Well, in their culture, it would have been rude for a person in a city not to give food and water to a sojourner. So there's a little bit of a different cultural context. But then as she starts to go, he also says, well, give me some bread. But this time, she does balk. And she says, well, as Yahweh, and you may notice, she says, your God lives. I only have a sparse amount of oil and flour. In fact, I'm going right now to cook these sticks I picked up, mix that oil and flour together, bake it, and then we're done. That's it. The pantry is empty. The cupboard has nothing. And my son and I, we're going to die. And so Elijah goes, okay, I didn't understand. There must be another widow in town. Uh, I misunderstood God's word. Let me find the, right, the rich widow. That's what we need. Well, no. He then says, don't fear. But first make me a bread cake and then one for you. Now, when many people read this, they say, Elijah's kind of rude. You know, Elijah, he shouldn't have said that. I mean, that woman was literally on death's door. To call her to give it to him first, that's unloving. And yet, while I'm sure it was maybe personally challenging for Elijah to do this, obedience can be challenging, this is exactly what God was calling him to do. Because notice verse 9 says, God says, I commanded a widow to feed you. Sometimes you have to tell someone, even though it may benefit you, that they have to obey God. 
So like when a parent has to tell their child, you need to obey me because God's word says so. Well, that can be rather self-serving, can it? Well, it could be. But it could also be that you're trying to help them to live in obedience to the Lord. Or when a police officer has to tell someone, you need to obey my instructions right now. Oh, you're a police officer. You're abusing your authority. Well, it could be. Or it could be that he's an authority and he knows what's best and he's trying to do what's best for you by you submitting to him. And so Elijah, knowing that God had commanded this widow to do this, was not being harsh and unloving. He was actually being loving. He was calling her to obey God's call upon her life. This time she obeys. And she does like God called her to through Elijah. And amazingly, the flour was not spent. And the oil did not decrease because as God told her would happen through Elijah, if she would do this, it would last. So sadly though, I think many people, maybe us, we read the stories and think, man, isn't that amazing how God used to work? Oh, the Bible's so neat. These things when God used to be active in the world and how he was taking care of people, isn't that amazing? And yet God still provides. God still calls us to trust him for our daily bread. Earlier, Keith read for us Luke chapter 12, where Jesus calls us not to be anxious. And did you notice what it says? Jesus said, consider the ravens. Those very unclean birds that fed Elijah, God cares about those ravens. And so he's going to care about you. And so what does Jesus call us to? To seek his kingdom and his righteousness. And these things will be added to you. I've mentioned before, Corey Ten Boom, she lived during World War II. And she was in Nazi-occupied Holland. And she was a believer and she tried to be faithful to God. And so when the Nazi Germans wanted to start arresting and sending to concentration camps Jews, she and her family began to hide them, to protect them and get them off to safety. And they did this for some time, but then they were discovered and she and her sister Betsy ended up being sent to these same concentration camps. When her autobiography, The Hiding Place, she tells about how her sister Betsy was very sick and though they'd had many checks, many times where they had gone through security, they'd been able to sneak through a bottle of medicine all the way until their concentration camp. And she writes, Another strange thing was happening. The medicine bottle was continuing to produce drops. It scarcely seemed possible. So small a bottle, so many doses a day. Now, in addition to Betsy, my sister, a dozen others were taking it. My instinct was always to hoard it. Betsy was growing so very weak, but the others were ill as well. It was hard to say no to eyes that burned with fever, hands that shook with chill. I tried to save it for the very weakest, but even those soon numbered 15, 20, 25. And still, every time I tilted the little bottle, a drop appeared at the tip of the glass stopper. It just couldn't be. I held it up to the light, trying to see how much was left, but the dark brown glass was too sick to see through. As you read the story, you then know the medicine lasted until one day a girl stole medicine and then they didn't get a single drop that night. As long as they trusted God's provision, they were given the medicine they needed. Now what I'm about to say could be very manipulative. And sadly, many pastors, many religious leaders say these things manipulatively. Or like I said, this can be loving, calling you to obey God's word. So be Bereans. 
see if what I say is based on God's word. But I believe that each of us is also called, like the widow of Zarephath, to first give everything to God and then trust him to provide the rest. One application of that is before you commit to any financial obligations, you should first make a priority to giving financially to God. And often, often people do the opposite. They go figure out what house they want to live in. They go get their cars. Then they pay for their utilities, their bills. They go out to eat. They get their clothes. And then they go, how much do we have left to give this month? Okay, we'll give that. And yet God is calling us to first say, we're going to give this to God. And I'm going to trust that he's going to provide for me and my family with the rest. And you can take that with other things besides money, your time, your talents. Trust God with the best, the first, and he will give you the rest. So should you give 10%? Well, I don't know. That's a minimum Old Testament believers were expected to give. There's not a mandate of that in the New Testament. That could be a good bar to begin with. You know, I say begin with because we are people on the other side of the cross. How much more of God's grace and his love have we seen? And so how much more should our hearts respond with joy? Now, Keith and I will often talk about things beforehand. We didn't talk about that we were both going to talk about giving this morning. And there is no statement at the end of the service like, well, actually, we're in the whole $10,000, so if y'all could give. So we're doing fine financially. There's no arm twisting. We did lock the doors and have plates. But besides that, nothing weird's going on. That's a joke. If you were listening to the recording, we didn't lock the doors. But my next thing is 2 Corinthians 9, 6, and 7. It says, the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he's decided in his own heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And so the point is that individually, family, church, we need to say we're going to commit ourselves to God and then we're going to trust He's going to provide the rest. You know, next week we're going to have a second quarter business meeting. I can't tell you the number of times we've had a business meeting and the numbers look pretty bad financially. And then that next week, we get a totally unexpected check for more than that amount. Now, God could have sent that check anytime, but he often has sent it after we've gone, how are we going to pay for this stuff? He provides the oil jar does not run out. Now, we need to be clear. At some point, God is going to call all of us home. So this is not a blank check. This is not saying, well, trust God and you'll never get sick. You'll never die. Yes, we all are going to, but it's saying we can trust God that he's going to provide the oil as long as he has for us to be here on earth. And yet the problem is that many of us, we can affirm this with our head. Oh yeah, that's great. Man, that was a great story about Corey Ten Boom. That's wonderful. And man, this widow, that's a wonderful story. And yet while our head can understand, our heart doesn't always know. And we see that lastly in verses 17 through 24, knowing God's word. I'll read 1 Kings 17, beginning in verse 17. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill, and his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son? And he said to her, Give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up to the upper chamber where he lodged. <coughs> Excuse me. 
and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, Oh, Lord, my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourned by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, Oh, Lord, my God, let this child live. Come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. And the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. So Elijah had lived with this widow for some unstated amount of time and then her son becomes very sick and then he dies. And when this happens, the woman verbally attacks Elijah. What are you doing? Here I am, I'm providing for you and you're going to let my son die in my house? Are you bringing my sins to remembrance? And probably many of us have known that painful experience. God gives us a good gift and then he takes it away. And you want to say, why did you give me the gift in the first place? I would have been happier if I'd never known that relationship or if I'd ever known the joy of having that thing. Why do you give and then take away? Is this some sort of cruel divine joke? And we could say many things about this. And I would encourage you, if you're in that season, there are so many beautiful psalms. They're called the Psalms of Lament, in which psalmists are crying out saying, God, why did you do this? And it's honest wrestling with God. There's nothing wrong if in the right way you're asking, God, why? As Jesus even said, my God, my God, why are you forsaking me? In this case, the specific case, God is using this tragedy to draw the woman to himself, to help her know that she can truly trust him in all things. Elijah, he doesn't respond to the accusation. I mean, what could he say in the first place? But he goes up and he basically says the same thing. God, why would you allow this to happen to the woman I'm staying with? And then he stretches him out, himself out three times on the child. Who knows why? You can find a lot of ink spilled on it, but I think they're all guessing. And then he prays. That's the important thing. Major on the majors. And then God hears him and revives the child. But notice the important thing. Elijah had no power in and of himself to heal the boy. But by prayer, he connects to the one who has the power over life. Elijah didn't whip up some concoction. He didn't make a brew. He didn't have a magical incantation. Even the spreading out, though we don't know what it means, it was not some kind of magical act. Elijah, as James 5 says, was a man like us. And what did he do? He prayed and God worked through him. So then Elijah joyfully brings the child down. And what does the woman say? Look again at verse 24. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. Well, wait, how did it mean? Now she knows. I mean, she's been every day making pancakes out of a jar that was supposed to run out Months, years ago. How does she know now? Well, because sometimes we grasp and yet we don't grasp. We believe and yet we don't believe. And I think this story is showing us two major things. First, let's remember the context of what's going on. Where is Elijah? He is in 
Sidon. And who is supposed to be the God of Sidon? Baal, the God of life. And yet what happens? Death. Where is the famine? Well, the famine's not just in Israel. The famine's also in Sidon. And it's showing, look, to this widow, and then it's going to show us in chapter 18 to all of Israel, look, Baal can't even be trusted in his backyard. Baal can't even be trusted for the very things he is supposed to be able to do. God is not impotent. God is omnipotent in every part of this universe. He is the God who lives, as it says, over and over in this passage. You know, and that's the emphasis of Scripture throughout. God is the creator, the sustainer of life. Genesis 2, 7 says, Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. You know, before God worked in us, we're a lifeless corpse just there. But when God, the source of life, breathes into us, we have life. Paul adds in Acts 17, 28, In God we live and move and have our being. Amazingly, though God is life, He sent His Son as the Word to bring life, since our sin plunged us into the curse of death. Thus John 1, 4, when it's describing the Word, it says, And the Word was life, and the life was the light of men. Famously, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. God came to restore the life that we lost. And thus, Jesus says in John 17.3, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Therefore, nothing and no one else, and in this case, especially not Baal, should be and can be trusted for life, in your life. Second, this is showing something very important for the story, and that is, this validates Elijah. It was Elijah truly a prophet? As we go through First and Second Kings, we're going to see that prophets arise who aren't really speaking for God. Sometimes as you speak with your friends, maybe some of them will claim, oh, well, if you believe that God speaks, then you've got to believe everyone who says I'm speaking for God. How can you really know? And yet the Bible's always clear. Messengers of God always have authentication. Elijah doesn't just say, I'm speaking for God, believe me. Well, how do we know? You just got to believe me. No, he shows through his actions that he is from God. And yet, while all of that is important, I wonder if you notice the woman's statement. Why did she think her son had died? Punishment for her sin. You see that in verse 18. What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to bring my sin to remembrance? You know, guilt is a real and good thing. You know, many people today, even many professional counselors, try to minimize our guilt. Oh, you shouldn't feel guilty. And what do they do? They compare you to other people. They say, well, no one's perfect. Or don't be so hard on yourself. And yet something in us tells us what I did was wrong. And I deserve punishment. And that is God working in your life, helping you to know that there is guilt for what we do. And we don't need to rationalize our sin away. Well, if other people in my shoes, they would have done it. Or minimize it. Well, it's not as bad as what other people do. Rather, we need to own it. 
Because God says if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The woman didn't know. The woman didn't know that God also had an only son and that God would send his only son for the punishment for sin. Her son didn't need to die for her sin. God would send his son to die for her sin. He died so that she wouldn't need to take the punishment, so we wouldn't need to take the punishment, but that he would take the punishment. And yet again, like the widow, we can affirm these ideas here with our head, but do you affirm them with your heart? The widow could say, yeah, you're always providing my daily bread. But did she trust him with all of life? You know, I've shared this story before, but I think it's an apt illustration to wrap up and then give some applications of it. You have probably heard or maybe have not heard of in the 1850s, a uh, French tightroper made an announcement that he was going to go to Niagara Falls, set up a tightrope and walk back and forth across it. Well, some people were skeptical. Some people thought he was just playing crazy, but he drew a crowd. The tightrope was set across, and he walked across, and he walked back, and the crowd went crazy. He did other things on this tightrope. Then he got a wheelbarrow, and he pushed the wheelbarrow down, and he pushed the wheelbarrow back. And then he put a bag of cement in the wheelbarrow, and he pushed it down and pushed it back. And each time he added something, the people were going crazy. Oh, I can't believe he's doing this. And then he looked at the crowd and he said, do you all think I could push it across with a person in it? And they, oh yeah, you can do it, yeah. And he looked at one reporter and he says, do you think I can do it? And the man was like, I really think you can. You're the greatest stunt artist I've ever seen. And he said, great, get in the wheelbarrow. Uh, and that's the way many of us are with trusting God. Oh, that's great. Did you see what he did with the widows there? Oh, that's amazing. Oh, Corey Ten Boom. Oh, that's amazing. You get in the wheelbarrow. Uh, let's go back and talk about that widow in Zarephath. Can we talk about her? And yet God is calling all of us to trust him. You know, let's think about four F's. Sorry, it's a bad pastor thing. Four F's that we see from this story. Elijah followed. When God said, do this, what did he do? He trusted and he followed God. He followed to go live in a wilderness. He trusted God to go live in Sidon. Whatever God called him to do, he followed. He obeyed. He sec second, we see in this story, trusting God with your finances, with your provisions. What does the woman do? She's called on God to first care for the prophet and then herself, and she does it. And God blesses her. So God calls us to trust him by following him, by using our finances for him, trusting him with your family, all the widow. She had to trust that God was going to care for her son. And you know, sometimes that's the hardest. Well, what about my loved ones? Can I really trust you with them? You know, Jesus had friends, siblings set, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And you know that Lazarus died. And when Jesus went to be with them, Martha was like, Lord, you could have done something. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then Jesus asked, do you believe this? You know, that's the question that 1 Kings 17 is pushing on us. Not do you find this a fascinating story, but will you get in the wheelbarrow? Will you trust God? So we should trust him by following. We should trust him with our 
finances and family, and lastly, with our faults, or you might say, your sins. You know, that's what the woman was called to do. She was called to say, look, I'm not being punished for my sins. God sent the punishment, so I can trust God. I don't need to go out and don't even need to come to church to get God to love me. I don't need to do all these things. I need to trust that God sent payment for my sin, that I can be forgiven, that I can be restored to him. And so may we trust God. May we get in the wheelbarrow, so to speak, trusting our lives in his hand, knowing that he will care for us. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we place our lives and all of those applications of it in your hands. Lord, we trust you. Lord, there are many times where we don't understand. Why would you give us this good thing and then take it away? And yet we call out to you. Sometimes we cry literally with tears. Why, oh why, Lord? And so would you help us to grieve and rejoice correctly, knowing that your hands can be trusted in all. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.